Luke chapter 24, verse 1. It says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in, and they found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And they returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself at that which has come to pass. And so as we come now to the last segment and really one of the last events in the ministry and the life of Christ, we see the events that took place on the morning of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And what we have in this passage before us is the actual happening of the resurrection and how that event affected three different uh, groups of people, if you will, that came there to the tomb that morning and found uh, not the body of the Lord Jesus lying there where it had been placed um, those hours and days before that. The first of these groups that we see are the women, it tells us, that upon the first day of the week brought the spices that they had prepared with the intent of giving to him a proper burial according to uh, Jewish custom. Now you'll recall that Jesus um, gave up the ghost late on a Friday afternoon. It was about 3 p.m. on a Friday. And in that um, culture, in, those, in that um, world, the day was about to end. Their day went from sun up, uh, sundown to sundown. And so Friday was, was near to close at the point when Jesus gave up the ghost and there was only three hours left in the day. And also in that society, the, set, the Saturday or what would be the Sabbath day was a day whereupon no work could be done. And that was a special Sabbath and that it was following the Passover. And so for uh, a double cause, they were in a hurry to get the body of Jesus down from the cross and to get it into the tomb. Otherwise, he wouldn't have received a proper burial at all. And so a rush job had been done to get him down from the cross and then brought to the tomb, and it was just finished, just on time, for the Sabbath then to begin. And then all day Saturday, from sundown through the day and then to sundown again, um, was the Sabbath, and nothing took place. The women had prepared the spices, but they had to rest according to the law. Jesus was in the grave for that day. But then on Saturday evening, what would begin the third day, they would go through the nighttime hours of that third day. And then it tells us then that very early in the morning now, these women that had waited this day and that were in extreme grief within their hearts because of the things that um, they were feeling because of what they had experienced through the supposed loss of Jesus. Now they come to the tomb and their desire and their, their plan is to open it up and to uh, lay things in order the way that they're supposed to, to. The grave clothes with the spices and the preservatives and the aloes and, and all of the things that they would do um, to give Jesus his proper uh, burial. But when they get there, we're told that they find that the stone had already been rolled away. Now in Mark's gospel... We're told that they were worried about how they would do it. This stone was something that would be mammoth in size. If you've ever been to our uh, resurrection 
day services and we have the mock-up of the tomb that we put in the background of the scene and you see the the the, the stone um, that is about six feet in diameter you, you know that's carved out in such a way that it closes what would be the size of a regular doorway or just maybe slightly shorter than a regular doorway that someone could pass through and so this was no small thing that you could just move with a couple of guys you needed like uh, uh, you know some kind of fulcrum or something to move this thing and they were worried about how they would get that done but they find that when they get there the stone is already rolled away and so the first point of uh, of puzzling comes then and then they go in and that's where the second point of puzzling comes when they look for the body of the Lord Jesus and they find that it's not there and so their responses were told to that is that they were perplexed or that they were confused or that they could not rationally make sense of what was happening in front of them. There was a perplexity due to the fact that the Lord Jesus wasn't there, which then was followed by two angels appearing before them, men in shining garments that were not there when they walked in, but appeared while they were there. Thus the fear that came over them in that moment. And they fell to the ground with their faces, not knowing what was about to happen. And then those men asked the question, they said, why do you look for the dead or the living among the dead? And he, they, he challenged him and he said, don't you remember what he said to you while he was yet with you, that he would be crucified, that he would die, and that three days later then he would rise again from the grave. And it says that then they remembered his word. And so the first encounter on Resurrection Sunday morning was a group of ladies that had ministered to and alongside of Jesus that were met with perplexity over the fact that they couldn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Well, they then carried the message of the resurrection to the second group of people that we see within our text, and that would be the company of the apostles and those that were with them and those that traveled with him in those days. And so they bring this message that they had heard uh, first seen and then heard from the angels and they bring it now to the 12 and with, I'm sure, an incredible excitement and stirring within them, they now relay the events and also the message that was given to them while they were there to the 11. And their response is quite amazing, isn't it? Because they look at these women and their assessment of them and of what they're saying to them is that, you know what, you guys have been through a lot. The emotions are running high. You probably haven't slept and and you got up early again this morning. You went to the tomb. I don't know what you saw there, but it says that they perceived that they were as idle tales and it says that they believed them not. And so much was that level of disbelief that the group or the company of them refused to even leave the room where they were waiting and go investigate and see if there was any truth uh, to the matter at all. And so the second group of people that were told of the resurrection on that morning, their response to it was unbelief. And so you have perplexity by the women and then you have unbelief coming from the apostles and the company of those that were with the Lord Jesus. Then you have the third uh, group and it's really a group of just one. And that is the apostle Peter uh, by himself. And you recall that the last thing that Peter had done while Jesus was yet alive is that he denied him the third time, heard the crowing of the rooster, then made eye contact with Jesus from across the way, and then went out and wept bitterly because he had denied the Lord doing the thing that he thought that was uh, something that he would never do, discovering his own heart. And so the very last thing that Peter had done was deny Jesus. And so when he hears this message from this woman, every emotion of regret and remorse and sorrow rises up within him. And in his mind, if there's any chance at all that there could be something to this, then I need to get this repentance out of me because it's killing me to hold it in any longer. And so Peter, without saying a word to any of the people that were there gathered in the room, gets up, bolts out as fast as he can. And and of course, in John's gospel, it tells us that John uh, went with him and that John actually outran him. Little dig, John was younger, you know, to the thing. But Peter could care less about any of that 
And he came into the tomb, and when he walked into it, he saw that nothing was there, that the tomb was absolutely empty, and it says that Peter wondered at these things. And so three groups of people, women who were met with perplexity, apostles, and amazing, these aren't the disciples, these are the apostles, right? The ones, that, the A-list that Jesus chose. And it says that they were met with, or they met it with unbelief. And then third is Peter, and it says that he wondered. In other words, there was something in him where he couldn't make sense of it either. He thought, what in the world is going on here? Now, what is the reason why the resurrection of the Lord Jesus was met with confusion and then with unbelief and then with wonder amongst uh, these three groups of people? The first reason why uh, most likely is because uh, there was an impracticality to the fact that Jesus' body was missing. It was a very impractical thing. Now, they knew, this group of them, the women and the apostles and Peter, they knew that no one had gone at night and stolen the body. Now, that would be the accusation that would come from Rome and from the Jewish officials, but they would be the ones that did it, and they didn't. And and so, in their minds, if they hadn't been the ones that would steal or remove the body of the Lord Jesus, then it certainly wouldn't be advantageous to any other group of people that was living in Israel at that time to do it. In fact, we're told in Matthew's gospel that after Jesus had been placed in the tomb, some of the chief of the priests came to Pilate and they said, we remember that this deceiver said that after three days he would rise again. And so we need to guard the tomb. And so Pilate gave orders and he said, you can have as many soldiers as you want, secure it. And so there was no one in Israel besides the apostles and these women that would have any interest in taking the body of Jesus from the tomb in order that they might say that that he's resurrected, nor would it be to their advantage giving the Christians an excuse or an ability to say that he was resurrected if indeed he had not been. And so it was extremely impractical and it caused confusion within them. Why would his body be missing if we didn't take it? The second reason why they were perplexed and unbelieving about this is because in their minds, it was illogical that he would actually rise. I mean, it's unscientific. And yes, we know that while Jesus was present with us, there were people that were raised from the dead, and that was something that was common while he was here. But now, the one who raises the dead has been put in the grave himself. And if he didn't have power to spare his own life, then how now would he then rise from the dead? So it's unscientific and it doesn't even make sense in the scheme of who he was and the things that he didn't. And so because it was beyond human understanding that he would rise from the dead, it says that they thus then dismissed it as something that must be impossible. Now, the reason why that is so incredibly remarkable is because there are no less than five times while Jesus was walking with the disciples during his earthly ministry that he specifically told them that he would die and that then three days later he would rise again. That's what the angels had to remind the women about. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, when Jesus was up north in the region of Caesarea Philippi, right after Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. You you guys know the passage. Right after that, it says in verse 21, that from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. And they heard him and they heard him. And not only did they hear him, but Peter then took Jesus aside and it says that he began to rebuke him because uh, the things that he was saying were an offense to the plans that Peter had for Jesus. Then just a few days after that, when Peter, James and John were taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration, And they saw Jesus glorified in their midst while they were on the way down. In Matthew 17, verse 9, it says, As they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell no man the vision until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. 
And of course, Mark's uh, um, uh, testament of this says that they questioned within themselves what the rising of the dead should mean. And so it was something that they then heard uh, for the second time. Then, uh, not long after that, while Jesus was still in Galilee, it's recorded in Mark's gospel, chapter 9, in verse 32. Um, actually, I think it's, uh, yes, Mark 9, it's in verse 31. It says, um, for he taught his disciples and he said unto them that the son of man is delivered into the hands of men and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he will rise again the third day. And then verse 32 says, but they understood not that saying and they were afraid to ask him. Then just a few days after that, Mark chapter 10, again, verse 32 it says, and they were in the way going up to Jerusalem and Jesus went before them and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the 12 and began to tell them what things should happen to him saying, behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the son of man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles and they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he will rise again. And so he tells them again. Then in Luke's gospel, chapter 18, just prior to going into Jerusalem. So just about a week before the events actually took place. In Luke chapter 18, verse 31, it says, Then he took unto him the twelve, and he said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. But then in verse 34, next verse, it says, and they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things that were spoken. Now, I just want to say at this juncture, especially to you women that are here or you wives, this is something that God does to men all the time. And that is that we can hear something and then we can hear something and then we can hear something and then we can hear something. And then you can say, remember when I said this? And we go, you never, ever, ever said that to me. I'll cut off my left foot if you could prove that you ever said that to me. Here's the reason why that happens. Because sometimes the spirit of God, just to be funny, hides it from us. And so we're nodding and we're looking at you as though we hear exactly what you're saying. But in reality, uh, it's like Charlie Brown's teacher. Womp, 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 womp. Yes, ma'am. Womp, womp. That's what, ha that's what happens, you know. But here there was a spiritual something that was taking place that was coupled with the fact that they didn't understand the reality or the reason or the why behind all of what was taking place through the death and, the, and then the resurrection of Christ so that when they even heard the testimony of these women, it says that they didn't believe it. Now, it's interesting. What they did is what many, um, I, I would even say Christians, it's what many Christians do. And that is this, is that they failed to bridge the gap between the Bible and real life. And by that, what I mean is that there are times that the Bible says things to us that don't make sense in the, uh, uh, our interpretation of the modern world or in life as we know it. And, and so our tendency when the Bible contradicts what we experience in our everyday life is that we want to dismiss what the Bible says and we want to stand upon what we understand to be in our real life. And so what we do is that we interpret the Bible by the real modern world, when in reality what we should do as Christians is that we should interpret the modern world based upon what the Bible says. And when we don't do that, then what we have is we have an excuse why not to believe something that God said is true. And so you translate that into some other arena where we see it played out in today's world. And you look at the way that uh, Christian people view relationships and view marriage. And, and because we don't understand the reason why God says one man, one woman for life, 
waiting until the time that the marriage is sealed in order to consummate the marriage because we don't understand why that's practical or why God said those things, then we dismiss it as it being non-essential or that God doesn't uh, actually care if we obey that command. What we've done is we've interpreted the Bible based upon our experience and what we can understand. Or as Christians, maybe something um, not, not so much on, the, on the, the dark side of things, but just when it comes to something as simple as prayer. The Bible tells us that we're to pray. We're invited to pray. God's given us an open door. He says, you have not because you ask not. But when we begin to analyze and think about what it is that we're doing when we pray, we have something that short circuits in our understanding. Because we say, well, God already knows the things that I need. He already knows what I would say. He already has a will. He's going to do something or he's not going to do it. And so in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't make sense that my prayer would mean anything or do anything. And so I'm not going to pray. We've interpreted the Bible based upon our finite understanding of things rather than what God says, which is pray. And so it happens. And we see that the whole foundation of our country is collapsing out from underneath of us because what was once a Christian nation has interpreted the will and the commands of God based upon what they experience, feel, and think in the modern world rather than what he has spoken and commanded and uh, sanctioned through the holy word of God to a point where now even the president of godless Russia would say on live TV in front of the whole world that the United States of America is collapsing under its own lack of morals. That even someone who is outside looking in can see the reason for it when we ourselves can't see what has happened. You know what's remarkable about this whole thing when we bring it back to the resurrection is that even the enemies of the Lord Jesus heard and understood the word that Jesus had said wherein the disciples did not. They said in Matthew chapter 27, verse 62 and 63, when they came to Pilate, they said that we remember that this deceiver said that he will rise again on the third day. So they knew what the disciples were supposed to know. They believed in a sense, but the apostles, when they heard it, they didn't. I don't understand it, so I don't have to believe it. Listen. Human knowledge must be understood to be believed, but divine knowledge must be believed in order to be understood. And that's where their faith failed. And so it was illogical that he would actually rise. The third reason why they were perplexed and in unbelief and wonder concerning this is because they were still yet ignorant of the real reason why Christ came in the first place. They still thought somewhere underneath of all that they had seen and heard that Jesus came in some way to establish an earthly kingdom and that his work within their lives was to take them from a dead-end job and an obscure, bland existence and to let them sit upon 12 thrones ruling and reigning in a kingdom that he had come to set up. That was what was in their mind, the purpose of the ministry of the Messiah. He is here to give to me a better life and and to bless uh, me and make me a part of his kingdom. And so they were ignorant of the fact that that's not what he came to do and that wasn't the primary need that they had within their life. And so what was it then? Why did Jesus come and what is the significance of the resurrection, the thing that would make sense of it unto them? What does the resurrection mean? Why did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Why did Jesus Christ have to rise from the dead? What is the significance? Number one, if you're taking notes, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, testifies to his sinless life. Or to say it another way, it testifies to his righteousness. The fact that he lived a life on earth in the body of a man And yet he never sinned in any way during the entirety of that life in the world. The first and greatest command of the law, really it's before the law. So you could say the great law of God before the law of Moses was that the wages of sin is death. What did God say to Adam when he put him in the garden and placed the tree of knowledge there? He said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The 
penalty for disobedience or for sin is death. And that precedes every other law that God had made. The presence of sin must be um, punished or um, axion made equal with death. That's the only way that it can be atoned for. And so it stands to reason that if sin causes death, and it does, then if there is no sin, then there cannot be death. And because Jesus was born without sin, that he was born of a virgin, he didn't have original sin like you and I do. And then he lived a sinless life. Even though he suffered a brutal death, it was impossible that he would stay dead if he was sinless. Now, if he had sinned at any time, then the penalty that he paid upon the cross would be for his own sin, even if it was just one. But if there was none, then he would have to rise again because the grave would not be able to hold a sinless man. Death is exclusively the payment for sin. So if there is none, there can be no death. And so the resurrection testifies to the fact that he was sinless or that he was righteous. Secondly, the resurrection then building on that signifies and seals the forgiveness of sin and of sins for those that will put their faith in him. Through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, what he uh, 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 endured and went through is, is that he carried or absorbed the full weight of the wrath of God and the penalty for sin. That's what he went through when he was on the cross. It's what he told them that he was going to do. From the very beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus was with his disciples at the Last Supper and he broke the bread in front of them and gave them the cup, he said, this is the bread that is my body and this cup is my blood. The body broken, the cup, the blood spilled out for the forgiveness of your sins. He was letting them know that what he was about to go through in his passion, that the purpose of all of that experience was that he was going to in himself absorb the full weight of the wrath of God and the punishment for sin within himself. And so let's add the two things together. Jesus was absolutely sinless, but yet he endured the full punishment and penalty of sin. And so the result of that is that he rose from the grave because he actually had no sin. But when he rose from the grave, what he took with him was an extra righteousness. Because he himself had obtained his own righteousness through his sinful life. But in absorbing the wrath of God for sin, he obtained payment for somebody else's sin. And now he's able to transfer that righteousness onto someone else. And so the resurrection sealed or signified when he rose God's ability now to, in his justice, forgive sin and sins. Sin, the condition that we have, and then the sins that are the outcropping of that sinful condition that every man since Adam, every man, woman, and child since Adam came into this world with, And we suffer under the effects of that curse. And so he now has an extra righteousness. And his declaration is that whosoever will lay down their life and be found in Christ, whosoever will repent of their sin, receive my gift of salvation, they are no longer themselves, but they will be considered in me or part of me. And thus my righteousness extends beyond myself and it can now be given also to you. And so he provided a transferable righteousness that can now be obtained by faith in him coupled with confession of him as Lord and repentance of sin. And that's the gift of salvation, but it was purchased and sealed through the resurrection. If there was no resurrection, then there is no gospel. If there is no Luke 24 then every single one of us can just go home right now because there's absolutely no hope. There's no reason for us to be studying the Bible or looking at the life of Christ. He is nothing more than a historical figure who may or may not have done some good. But the fact that he rose again from the dead seals to us the fact that he is worthy and able to forgive us of all of our sins. 
The third thing that the resurrection does and the reason why it's significant and it's why Christ came is because the resurrection of Christ provides for us the means of a changed life. It provides power in us for us to change from what we were to what he is now making us into. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Now, he's not talking about the fact that we'll be resurrected while we're still alive. What he's saying is that the same power that raised Christ from the grave through the righteousness that he had is now also in us, working in us, the life of Christ while we yet live in this body. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul would say, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so what the resurrection of Christ provides outside of the forgiveness of sins is that it provides power in my life today for me to be what he's calling me to be and to change from my sinful self and that I might bear the image of Christ within the world. And that's a very real power, and that's a very necessary power that each one of us possess within our life. Just this morning, I was um, up, and just after the sun came up, and it's one of those last warm days, and I just went outside and walked down the hill in my backyard, and then through a little path that my kids cleared the leaves on. And I was standing next to a dried-up little stream, and I was looking through the last uh, remnants of the golden leaves of the maple trees o- over a hillside down into a cornfield. And I just stood there for a little while uh, and I was listening to the squirrels crunch, crunch across the leaves. And I began to just think for, for just that moment while I was standing there, uh, taking all that in with such gratitude, just for that moment and that minute, just sit, sitting there before the Lord. And I began to think, Lord, where would I be right now if 16 years ago you hadn't come into my life and I was on the trajectory or the end of the trajectory or 16 years into the trajectory of where I was headed at that time. And if you hadn't got a hold of my life and put me where I am today. And I just began to think about that for a couple of minutes and think about what I was and think about the things that were very actively uh, corrupting that were alive within me at that time that were very immature in their expression. And I thought, what if I had 16 years of no Holy Spirit power or life in me or redirecting or crucifixion or resurrection and and I was today where I would be if those things had just run their course for the last 16 years. And, and And I smiled and then I almost threw up. And then I smiled again. Because I'm not those things, not that I'm perfect and none of us are or ever will be on this side of, of eternity. But I'm not what I would be had he not come into my life and done things in my life that I would never have been able to do within myself. And if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave and the power that that now provides to the New Testament believer to not become what we would be or would have been, if it wasn't for that power, then we would be lost in those sins and the corruption of those sins would work their death within us. Absolutely. But the hope that we have that we're not those things and that we're changing is a very real power um, because of what he, he has done. And so the resurrection provides for a changed life because we are in Christ Jesus. And I'm so grateful uh, for what he has done. And so their perplexity and their unbelief and their wonder Their bewilderment over the situation was because they did not yet fully understand. They were still yet ignorant of the real reason why Christ came. But now the glory of the Lord Jesus is that he gets to reveal to them not only that he is in fact alive, but he gets to now begin to reveal to them that that is the reason and the purpose why he came into the world. And he can now begin to appropriate the reality of those things in their experience. And so as we move on from verse 12 and now into verse 13, 
back in Luke chapter 24, we get to see what Jesus is doing on the first day um, after his resurrection. And this is a most amazing um, thing to me to consider because what this is, as we get to this passage, is this is Jesus' first day off in like 4,000 years. Really, that's what it is because for the past 4,000 years, he's been creating the world and then preparing all things for his incarnation and his death and resurrection. And now he rises from the grave, he comes out of the tomb, and he has that, that, that Friday evening feeling. You know what I'm talking about, right? When you're like, oh, the weekend, this is great. I don't have to think about it. You know? And he's out. He punched the clock. He's resurrected. What would you do? Where would you go? Where does Jesus go? He goes to his disciples. And he begins gathering his bride. He begins stirring their faith. He begins helping them to understand the things that have taken place. And most important of all, he begins fellowshipping with the people that he just died and bought with his own blood. Notice in verse 13. It says, And behold, now two of them, and we find out that these two of them were there when the women came went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs or 60 furlongs. It translates out to be about seven miles. And so these guys evidently have some business to conduct. There's something for them to do in this faraway village. And so they um, pack up their things and they make their way towards Emmaus. And it says that they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. So this is something that God likes to do, (laughs) apparently, is from time to time just shield us from having perfect understanding of exactly what's going on. Now, Mark tells us in his summary of these things that Jesus appeared to these two in another form. So he comes to them in a body that they would not recognize. In some way, it's him, but it's not the him that they had seen for the three and a half years prior. They no doubt would have recognized him immediately. I mean, you have a seven-mile trip. You don't go seven miles without looking at someone to see what they look like. And so this is Jesus incognito listening in on their conversation while they reason about the things that have just taken place. Now, I wonder what that conversation was like. Because here they are, they're talking, and and, and what conclusions are they coming to? Was he really the Messiah? If he really was the Messiah, then why is he dead? Was he actually a deceiver? I mean, was all of that just a ploy, a plot? Was he really just a liar? How did he raise the dead? We saw him cleanse the lepers. What was the deal with the loaves and the fishes? Why would God anoint someone the way that he was anointed? If he, I mean, you can just imagine the types of things that they're trying to find a landing place for because nothing to them makes sense at this time while they're, they're just walking along and Jesus comes in and he just begins to eavesdrop and enter into their conversation. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, you can remember it because it's a 316. Those are the Bible verses. That's easy. It says that the Lord draws near every time people speak about him. That every time we have a conversation, the Lord eavesdrops and he listens in. And we see Jesus doing that in the flesh the day of his resurrection with these two that are walking now uh, to Emmaus on the first day of the week. And so Jesus now speaks to them in verse 17, and it says that he said to them, what manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? So he notices uh, that their countenance is fallen, and he hears the tone of their voice. And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, so we get the name of the one, but we don't of the other, answering, said unto him, are you only a stranger in Jerusalem? And hast not known the things which are come to pass in these days? And he said unto him, them, what things? Now, I wonder if Jesus really was clueless here. No, I don't think so. But I like this verse because it's the only verse that we really have within the Gospels of the New Testament that gives to us some kind of an indication as to how widespread the knowledge of these things was within the city of Jerusalem. Everyone knew who Jesus was. Not just from the week 
of events that had just taken place, but from the three and a half years of his ministry up in the Galilee and all the way down into Jerusalem, everyone knew who Jesus was and everyone had formed an opinion about him and everyone had heard of the things that were concerning the crucifixion that had just taken place. And that was so shocking that someone would have not heard about it that this man sarcastically looks at God and says, hey God, you need to get in the loop. (laughs) because everybody knows what's going on with this man. And so it says that they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, question mark, was he? Mighty indeed and word, that's absolute. There's no question about the things that he did and the words that he said before God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted, and notice that it's in the past tense. So you see which way their conversation is leaning. That it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. The three days ago, this man passed off the scene and all of the hopes that we had concerning who he was and what he came to do are now dashed upon the pieces because he's dead and gone. And that's the reason why they're sad was the question that Jesus asked. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. When they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them, which were with us, speaking of Peter and John, went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. And so the stone was rolled away, but there's no sign of the Lord Jesus. And these things are just beyond us. We don't understand. And now here, Jesus hears their synopsis of the scene. And then he speaks in verse 25. It says that he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, for one moment here, before you think that Jesus is breaking his own commandment, because remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, If you say, thou fool, that you're in danger of hellfire, oh, Jesus, you made it all the way through the resurrection and then you sinned, (laughs) you know. (laughs) That's not the idea. It's it's a a, a lighthearted expression um, that that speaks to their, their willful blindness of the reality of the scene. It's not a woeful condemnation that he's laying upon them here, but rather it's an uplifting preparation for encouragement. He's saying, you guys, so slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and then to enter into his glory? And then Jesus takes the stage. And I wonder if they started to walk slower and slower and slower. But for the duration of the journey from this time that Jesus joins them, he begins now to speak to them. And it says that beginning at Moses and all the prophets... He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I'm of the opinion that that was probably the greatest Bible study that was ever given in the history of the church or the ages. I think it's impossible for anyone to trump that Bible study from that time. King Jesus takes them with that one where he starts at the very beginning in Genesis 1.1, the words of Moses. And he begins to move through the Old Testament scriptures and expounding or extrapolating, pulling out all of the things that are written in the Old Testament scriptures concerning himself. I wonder what he shared. I wonder, I mean, it's impossible that he would share all of, all of the things that are there because the Bible says that every word speaks of him in some way. And so what things did Jesus share with them? Did he share about Abraham and Isaac and how when Abraham put the wood of the sacrifice upon his only begotten son that he loved and how the son carried the wood up the hill and that then the father fastened the son to the cross. But then he stopped him from slaying him. Instead, there was a ram with a crown of thorns right behind him who was slain instead. I wonder if he shared that story that so perfectly pictures the death of the Son of God upon a cross as the sacrifice for the sins of man. I wonder if he shared with them about Joseph, 
who was rejected by his brothers in his first presentation to them, but then was received with glory when he was presented to them as a ruler in the second appearing before them. I wonder if he shared with them about how Joseph was a picture of himself. I wonder if he shared with them about Moses in the days of Joshua and Aaron and Hur, when Amalek came against the children of Israel and Joshua in the valley fought the battle. And when he looked behind him, he would see up on a hill, three men standing and the man in the middle would have his arms raised with Aaron and Hur underneath propping his arms up while he would intercede for the man doing battle down in the valley below. I wonder if he shared with them, don't you see it? I was the man in the middle, the man with the cross, the one who ever lives to intercede for you. I wonder if he shared with them the significance of the blood of the Passover and of the Lamb of God and what had been rehearsed year by year in the death of the Lamb. I wonder if he rehearsed before them Moses and how Moses couldn't bring the children of Israel into the promised land because he stumbled at the law. But that Joshua, Yahshua, that he brought them in according to grace, what the law could never do, grace was able to accomplish. I wonder if he shared with them from the prophets of Daniel going into the lion's den, being condemned while he was innocent, sentenced by Pontius Pilate. Well, the equivalent of Pontius Pilate would be the king in that day that tried to get him delivered but couldn't get him delivered because of the law of the satraps that was binding. And how Daniel went into the lion's den, but that he came out resurrected, a picture of Jesus dying and rising again. I wonder what he went through. Every scripture of the Old Testament pointing to himself. But he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then in verse 28, it says, And then they drew nigh unto the village whither they went. And he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. Now, I love this verse. And I saw this verse when I read it this week for the first time in a light that I'd never seen it before. And that Jesus wanted them to constrain him to come in with them. But he was content to keep going if they didn't. He had given them this great Bible study that we're going to see had an incredible impact on them as they heard it. But then as they come to the village and arrive at their destination, he says, well, it was nice walking with you guys. And I'll see you later. I'm going to keep walking this way. And he waits for them then to give him the invitation to come in. They say, hey, come on in with us. And he is so ready and and willing and wanting to oblige. Here's the amazing thing about that, just in and of itself, aside from everything else that's going on right here. Did you know that God wants to fellowship with you? Did you know that he takes delight in the least of these? I mean, look at who he appeared to. He hasn't even appeared to the apostles yet, those that he had spent the most time with. These are just two disciples, Cleopas and a man that were not even given his name. And yet it delighted Jesus on resurrection morning to walk with these guys for several hours and just chat with them about the scriptures, opening it up to them, helping them to understand and see. And he wanted them to invite him in, that he would spend more time with them. Do you know that God wants to spend time with you? He looks for opportunities to sit with you. And I wonder how many times throughout our day, Jesus makes like he would keep going. And he just waits to see if we'll invite him to stay with us. Lord, thank you for being with me in the workday, but now I'm about to go in my house. Would you come? I'm about to meet with chaos as I walk through the doors and... Lord, I I would so appreciate it if you would go with me and that your peace would still be with me in this time. Jesus does this a lot in the Bible. We see it in in, in, um, the the time when the disciples were in the boat, remember? And the, 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 the storm was raging and Jesus came walking to them out on the water. And in Mark's gospel, it says that he made like he would keep going. He was gonna walk right by. But they said, Lord, come help us. And he, of course he did, but he would have kept going. He wanted them to invite him and he wanted them to call on him. We see it in Moses' account when he stood before the burning bush. It says that Moses saw the bush that was burning, but it wasn't consumed with fire. And he said, I'm going to turn aside and see what that is. That bush has been on fire for a long time and the fire doesn't go out. And so he went over and he looked at it. He stopped his day and went to see the site. And it says that when God saw that Moses turned aside to see, he was curious. He was interested. It says, then God spoke to him out from the bush. 
And I know that God wants the fellowship with us, but he wants our response. He craves our fellowship. Think about that. God, who is self-sufficient, completely satisfied, having nothing else other than himself, craves fellowship with you. That's an incredible thing. And we see it here with Jesus. And so it says that it came to pass in verse 30, that as he sat at meat with them, sat down to eat, that he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. Apparently in his signature way in which he would take bread, bless it, break it, and give it. And when he did, it says that their eyes were opened and they knew him. They knew at this point that it was the Lord Jesus. And here's the amazing thing. Don't you love it when God does this? And he vanished out of their sight. So there they are. They're sitting. The bread breaks. He gives it to them. Maybe they even saw the holes in his hands while he was sitting there. And they said, it's Jesus. Boom. He's gone. What would that be like to watch the bread just fall to the ground, right, that was in his hand? Or the cup of water just to spill down as he just disappears out of their sight? And so they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened up to us the scriptures? What's incredible to me in this account is that the very first manifestation of Jesus to disciples after his resurrection was him coming to them in the body of another man and expounding the scriptures to them. I want you to think about that. Because for me, that's really one of the very first ways that Jesus manifested himself to me. It was in the body of another man who was expounding to me the scriptures. And the way that Jesus was revealed in that is that while the scriptures were being expounded in that way, my heart was burning within me. There was something happening. You say, well, what in the world is this? I mean, is this what the Mormons talk about? The burning of the bosom? What's up with the burning of the bosom that he talks about here? This burning of the heart that these disciples uh, had. What it speaks of, and if you have felt this, if you've had this, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a deep spiritual resonance that takes place way down inside that you have to know in order to explain. It's deeper than an emotion or a feeling, though it does carry one. And it's easy to counterfeit, but it's impossible to replicate. What it is, it's the Spirit of God transcending every layer of our being, arresting our attention and communicating to us on every level all at once through our hearing, our understanding, and our will, empowering our motivation to be or to do all at once. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that when you just listen to the scriptures expounded and the spirit of God does something with it where he takes it so much further than just the learning of the intellect and the hearing of the ear or the understanding of human speech. And he takes it into the very heart of hearts and he makes you just stop. And it's as though time stops. Well, sometimes for a while, you know, time stops and and everything stops and, and he has your attention. And he's doing something inside that you could never explain, but it's a rewiring, it's a reworking, it's a breathing upon, it's a shaping the way a potter would take clay and he just shapes it. And you know that the Spirit of God is speaking into your life, that there's something happening, it's something that's legitimate and real. I remember I was 19 years old and I walked into a Calvary Chapel, not that it had to be a Calvary Chapel, but it was. And I sat in the back of a Seventh-day Adventist church that was being rented by this small fellowship at the time. There was probably about 25 people that were sitting there. And the pastor was a man wearing washed-out black faded jeans and a green sweatshirt that just said Maine, like the state of Maine across the front. And with a big smile on his face, he said, let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. And he began through that church service to just move his way through the text of that scripture And as he just read it and then explained it and then applied it in the most simple terms that it's possible for me to communicate to you, I listened with my jaw, I think, on the floor 
as the Spirit of God began to do something in me and reveal to me a world that I never knew existed. And what he did in me at that moment as I heard the word of God expounded in simplicity in that way with no hype, with not much emotion or charisma, but just the word of God carried by the spirit of God into my heart is that it changed something in me. And it developed in me an appetite for something that I never knew was there. And it caused and created in me a call even to the ministry that I didn't even know at the time was happening in my life. But it became something so powerful and so real that that was the thing that I wanted more than anything else is to know this God and to know his work within my life and to know his presence within my heart. And that if I could in some way, and if I can in some way as a pastor, be that voice that Jesus uses and carries the power of his Holy Spirit into the hearts of someone else, then God, there is no greater thing in all of life than to let that happen. Because I know what it's like to have Jesus manifest himself in another man's body through the expounding of the scriptures and the work of the Holy Spirit, taking those scriptures and stirring them up within the heart. And there is no substitute for that when it comes to anything that we would do or endure or call church in the days in which we live. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is living and powerful and that it's sharper than any two-edged sword and that it pierces even to the dividing asunder of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and of the marrow, and that it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And hear this, and we'll close with this, is that it is possible to have a soulish experience on the emotional level, wherein the Spirit of God had absolutely no place at all. But it is an altogether separate thing when the Spirit of God comes through it, and it's so silent, and it's so real, and it's so powerful, and there's nothing like it. And it's what they experienced that day when Jesus came to them, and it was the proof that he had risen, and that he had been among them, and that he had walked. Did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures. And so they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. So a seven-mile trip that probably took six hours to accomplish on the front leg takes one hour on the back leg as they run all the way back now to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was made known unto them in the breaking of bread. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the reason for the resurrection, it's a seal that his righteousness was complete. It's a sign that our sins had been forgiven, and it provides power within our lives that he might conform us and make us into what we are not, and what it's impossible for us to make ourselves into. And the presence of the resurrection is that the living Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, craves that he would walk with you and I every moment of the day and every moment of our lives, and that there would never be one instant that we're not fully aware of his presence with us, of his work within us, or his help towards us. May he make it real in our lives. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the things that we have seen and the things that we've heard in this account of your resurrection from the grave. And we sit here in a spirit of deep gratitude and deep awe as we consider, O Lord, what we are the beneficiaries of and the recipients of so far on the other side of these actions. And for us to even think, Lord, that your desire for us is the same as it was with them and that your work within our lives, as complete as it was in them, will be in us. We make it our prayer tonight, Lord Jesus, that you would draw us close to you, that you would strip away the outer things of our heart, you'd strip away the religion and the religiosity, You would strip away the facades. 
you'd strip away all things and that you would come into the deepest part and that we would know you there. And we thank you for this great salvation and for this great hope. And we ask, Lord, that you would receive glory in our lives. So be with us, Lord, tonight as we leave. May these things burn in us even as they did in them. And that, Lord, even as they began that walk sad and left it with fervent joy, I pray that that same thing might be for some of us. That the reality of these things would light a fire in us, Lord. And so we ask for your presence to go with us and your blessing to rest upon us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand.